if you think of the current testing capacity as telephone dial-up in the late 1990s and Wi-Fi as 2020 technology, the gap between dial-up and Wi-Fi is smaller than the gap between today's testing and where we need to be. Health economist Amitabh Chandra is Director of Health Policy Research at Harvard Kennedy School and a professor at Harvard Business School. Dr. Chandra is also a member of the Congressional Budget Officers Panel of Health Advisors. Now, in conversation with Zoya Saroy and Judd Olanoff, he discusses the global challenge of getting masks, tests and a vaccine to the people who need them. This is The Dive. We bring Harvard faculty to you for conversations on the most pressing issues in the news. Episode 3, COVID-19, The Supply Challenge. guys. How are you? Good, good. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Let's start by acknowledging that we're now in the most critical two weeks in the United States in the fight against this pandemic. As we speak, hospitals are facing dire shortage of equipment to protect their own healthcare workers, and there are reports of doctors dying due to this shortage. How can this happen in 2020 in a wealthy country like the United States? I don't think our system in the US, despite how much we spend on it, is really a system that was designed to take on something like a pandemic. It's a system that is optimized for advanced care for cancer patients, patients who have rare orphan diseases would benefit by being in the US system. Even if I've had a heart attack, one could argue that maybe I wanna be in the US system. But if you're talking about pandemic, immediately my mind goes to, I need public health. And I just don't think of the American system as being optimized for public health. It's optimized much more for conditions that, you know, an individual person may have. So I don't find any of this, the situation we're in, particularly surprising. I think what people, um, what we should be more surprised by is not the fact that we're struggling in the U.S., but that we're struggling in these other systems whose whole claim was, we're actually very good at doing the public health. (laughs) They're not actually totally optimized to do the cancer or the rare gene therapy. Their whole point was, you know, we're government-sponsored healthcare, so what we're good at is managing things like pandemics, and we've seen very little evidence of that. So you would say you're more shocked by what has happened in Europe versus what has happened and is happening in the United States, right? Yeah. Just to be clear, I'm not defending the American situation. I'm saying our abysmal performance was to be expected. The abysmal performance of the NHS or the Italian government is, is what surprises me every day. The fact that Sweden hasn't even shut down its economy is shocking to me. You have folks in your hospital now trying to sew masks together for your healthcare providers. What is the other option? We were just looking at a sourcing these out of a company uh, out of Mexico, and they want $7 per mask. They've got a million of them in hand. And we, we, uh, this is a mask that normally would cost us 58 cents. But I would tell you, 
we're probably going to go ahead and take them for $7 each because we're that wow. desperate. So in the U.S., if you're a hospital and you urgently need the masks now in, in this time of shortage, when you can't rely on, on whoever was your regular supplier, where do you turn to? What do you do? I think it's one reason that American hospitals are literally turning to friends and family to get them masks because the supply chain, as you point out, is completely broken. So I have friends who are frontline physicians who are calling us up saying, you guys have masks at home for whatever reason, because you guys were doing construction projects. So you may have 30 surgical masks or maybe you don't have surgical masks, but can you, know, can you guys just make us a few face masks? Even though doctors may not wear those masks, we'll give it to patients so that when they cough, they don't spread uh, virus droplets onto us. So I think it's a really sad situation. And again, I think it stems from being in a system that's really not optimized to think about pandemics. You know, the Finns, for example, have a long history. They've been preparing for the pandemic forever. They've been building these incredible stockpiles. And so for them in Finland, this is not a problem. So in a hospital, when you need these items to be delivered, there are a lot of players involved from what mm. we've seen in the news. For example, if you take, say, Massachusetts General Hospital, if they need masks, you have the head of the hospital, then you have Boston's mayor, then you have the governor of Massachusetts. Who of these people is really in charge of getting the equipment? Yeah, I think in the US, we don't really know who's in charge at all, right? We certainly know no one's in charge at the federal level. So that we can all agree on. You know, the federal response to this has been a total disaster. But your point is a really interesting one because what you're highlighting is it's not like governors have said, we will build a chain of command in our state. So it's entirely possible for one hospital in Massachusetts to have a lot of masks and another hospital 15 miles away to not have any masks at all. Who's going to coordinate the transfer of masks from the first hospital to the second? We've seen New York do this, but it took an act of government to do this. Boston actually, in a way, weird way, I think will overcome this challenge more than a lot of other cities because for two reasons. One, we're a small city, but second, you know, the, the fingerprints, the long tentacles of the Harvard teaching hospitals are, are, are a glue here. So the hospitals, even though they may not be operationally connected to each other, are connected through medical students and residents. And at a time of crisis, that can prove to be a connective tissue that moves masks from one hospital to another. So I'm actually a lot less worried about Boston hospitals, much more worried about hospitals in New York, Chicago, Atlanta, Los Angeles, where you don't have this, um, this sort of connective tissue connecting all the hospitals. And we mentioned uh, European countries. There were news that France has vowed to become self-sufficient and produce the necessary equipment that they need themselves. Why has this not happened here? That's a really good question. So if we tell manufacturers, we need a lot of masks, but we won't let you raise the price of the mask, they don't really have an incentive to produce more masks. We'd like them to, but the reality is they have no incentive to really increase production 
unless we're willing to pay them more. Now, if we're not willing to pay them more, and we need masks, and we believe that their production capacity is really constrained, then we should nationalize the production of masks and invoke the public health crisis that we're in to justify the nationalization of mask production. So normally we're not in the business as a country of stealing your intellectual property and saying, you know, other people can, can do what you were doing. But this is not a normal situation. This situation is the first time, the last time we saw the situation was 100 years ago, right? So we don't think this is, this is exactly the kind of crisis situation where we need government to be thinking very hard about deploying the War Powers Act and things like that and nationalizing the production of the things that we desperately need. One of those things may be masks. Another one of those things may be ventilators. But whatever it is, I think we need to have a serious conversation about either we pay the companies more or we nationalize it or we don't pay the companies more, don't nationalize it, but deploy the Army Corps of Engineers to make the masks and make the ventilators. So that's the third option. Mm -hmm. right, so that's three options. And we did none of the three. Which option is more likely to take place? In the US? Yes. In the US, I think a lot of the manufacturers are private, so they will spool up capacity. And so, you know, I think already, the mass shortage problem is, is less today on, on April the 6th than it was on, say, March the 26th. So just in that 10, 11-day period, I'm not saying that the problem has gone away, but the problem is a lot smaller. The problem is a lot smaller for two reasons. One is that existing manufacturers have started to ramp up their production of masks. But we've also seen a lot of innovation in uh, personal protection equipment, right? So it's not even clear that the N95 masks that everyone wants to use are necessarily the best mask to use. So they're great masks, but as you know, it's a, it's a difficult mask to wear during a 12-hour shift because it relies on this negative pressure gradient. It really kind of cuts into your face. And so there's a lot of other innovation that people have produced, just 3D printers making you know, facial shields and things like that, which is actually welcome relief because now we don't need that many masks. We've got this other piece of equipment that we should be deploying and using. Right. I saw also news that Boston is experimenting with ways to sterilize masks. So that's also an interesting innovation in this field. Right, exactly. That's such a good point you raised because the, the, the claim is that the Boston facility can maybe allow us to reuse up to 90,000 masks a day. Now that's, see, that was in an unconstrained world, which is the world that we were in before March the 4th, we would never think of reusing a mask. But in a constrained world, if we can disinfect or sanitize a mask, why would we not use it? Because that's a lot easier to do. So I think you're, you're highlighting this point that it's not just that we need more masks, we need innovation in PP&E, and we're starting to get that. Columbia University's engineering school did some extremely exciting innovation on building uh, masks using 3D printers as well. And that was, you know, stuff that didn't exist three weeks ago. As the number of cases grows, there's a new warning tonight. The U.S. does not have enough coronavirus test kits to meet the current demand. Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health, 
told a congressional committee yesterday that the testing system in the U.S. is, quote, failing. The only way to know who has the virus and to trace and contain the virus is to test people. Testing is also the only way to know a real mortality rate because without it, you don't know the real number of cases. What are the main reasons the U.S. was not able to produce and distribute nearly enough test kits at the beginning of the outbreak? I think it was an unfortunate reason. It's not, uh, I think there's a variety of reasons, but at its core, the reason was an unfortunate one. You know, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, did such a good job of building tests during the SARS epidemic, which was, you know, when was SARS? Like November of 2002 or something like that. That we said, you know, if another epidemic like this were to hit, we'll need tests, we'll put you in charge of building those tests. Because you guys did such a good job. So when this pandemic hit, we thought the CDC would have all these tests ready. They did, but they didn't work. And now when you have got no capacity for alternative tests, and the one thing that we bet on doesn't work, it takes a while for the system to sort of spool up and start working again. And I think that system started to spool up. The FDA approved a bunch of new tests, but it didn't approve them using its regular approval pathways. It approved them using its emergency authorization pathways, which are authorization pathways where we don't really know what we're getting. So you, we approve this new test, but it's not approved using all the data that we would want. So we don't really know if it's a good test. The test could have a lot of false negatives. A test with a lot of false negatives would be a test that essentially says Amitabh doesn't have the virus. He's fine. He can return to work. But that was a false negative. So I actually had the virus. So we're seeing some of that. So again, it became, a, you know, a sort of a complicated story. But at its heart, it had to do with, um, you know, government regulation and failure, what, you know, not, not really being the, not being nimble enough to keep up with the current situation. I mean, the private market was able to keep up, but the private market is not able to regulate itself. And the FDA un under the incredible, you know, conditions we're in is not able to ask all these manufacturers to show it the data. And what can explain the CDC doing such a great job in SARS, like you said, being prepared and developing the test, distributing the test? I mean, the CDC is still the CDC, but what explains the difference between then and now in terms of test production and distribution? I think, you know, 2002, totally different leadership, totally different administration, but also in fairness to the CDC, much smaller disease. I mean, how many people had SARS relative to coronavirus? There's something about the scale of this that SARS never really rose to. You know, in addition, let's face it, we have underfunded the CDC dramatically for, a, for quite a while, right? So, I mean, this Congress, the, you know, the new house certainly uh, did a good job even before coronavirus hit to fund the CDC more generously, but the previous Congress had a very anti-government view of the CDC. So some of it is funding, some of it is leadership, and some of it is um, just that this is a completely different virus. So in some counterfactual world, I don't know if in 2002, if 
if SARS was as big as coronavirus, if the tests would have been, you know, if we had adequate tests. Right. And speaking of the CDC's role, why is it even the case that the CDC controls the development and distribution of tests at the beginning of the outbreak? Why, why couldn't, for, you know, there's a lot of biotech research brilliance and capacity across the country. Why couldn't labs and universities be more involved in developing tests? They absolutely could have, but I think it gets to the heart of um, why didn't they? They didn't because there was no market for those tests. Who you, you're not going to sell tests for coronavirus if there's no coronavirus, right? So now, I mean, it's a bit like asking, I think your question is so important because it, transitioning from testing to treatment, we also don't have drugs for coronavirus. Why is that? But they're actually the same. The answer is the same. There was no market for drugs for coronavirus. I mean, SARS was small. MERS was also small. Uh, Ebola was tiny. Tiny in the sense it was incredibly deadly, but not a lot of people died in the U.S. of Ebola. So at the heart of all of this, I guess the point I'm trying to make is the economic imperative to make money from launching a test or launching a treatment profoundly affects whether that test or treatment will be launched. But in, in earlier in the outbreak, like in, in January and February, for example, couldn't couldn't companies have anticipated that there would be a market for testing in the U.S.? Like, why was there the absence of... of oh, I think they could have... Well, I think most of the companies at that time thought there was no reason to go into it, even though this was likely to be big because the CDC would have the test and they would just not be able to sell against the CDC test. You see what I'm saying? And so it came down to the CDC failure. Yeah, the CDC... I mean, if people had known that the CDC was going to fail, if the CDC had put up a flag saying, our test is not going to work, I don't think we'd be in the mess that we're in on April the 6th. I think a lot of companies looked at the CDC and said, ah, there's really no business model here for us, and which is why they didn't go into it. And, and now that we know that the CDC doesn't have a test, all kinds of companies are in this business. And speaking of where we are on April 6th, we're now at the point where over a million people have been tested in the US. Can you frame that number? We're clearly doing better with testing than we were three weeks ago but the consensus seems to be that we're still not testing nearly enough. In your view, how many people is it reasonable to say should have been tested in the U.S. at this point? Look, if you ask me, at this stage of the outbreak, we should have had tests to the point that all of us are getting tested maybe once a day when we go to work, which is why we could go to work. So I think of that number off by being off by a factor of 330 million. Right. Like all of us should have been tested, not just once, but many, many, many times. And we need I mean, in some ideal world, we would all have some uh, little strip um, or pinprick test that we would take in the morning. And um, the results of that test are downloaded onto my phone. And when they're downloaded onto my phone, my phone, I'm just making this up, but it sort of glows green if I test negative and glows orange if I test positive, but if I glow green, I can go to work. So I think to your point, we've done a million tests. How many should we have done? Millions and hundreds of millions more than what we've gone and done. And if we had been able to do that, we wouldn't have needed to shut down the economy. And so if that is the goal, having widespread enough testing that you can do hundreds of millions of tests, let's talk for a minute about, you know, when people talk about reopening cities in the next few months before a vaccine is ready, 
what kind of testing capacity do you need in place, for example, in New York City or San Francisco two or three or four months from now to enable that city to reopen and, and then have sufficient testing to trace cases and contain them rather than a city just having to shut down again? Yeah, we're nowhere near that right now. I mean, if you think of the current testing capacity as telephone dial-up in the late 1990s and Wi-Fi as 2020 technology, the gap between dial-up and Wi-Fi is smaller than the gap between today's testing and where we need to be, right? So, look, I think we need a lot more testing, to your point. It needs to be very rapid testing. There's a lot of things about testing, technical things about testing that we have to figure out. But we've not figured out any of those things. And so my great worry is that as the shutdown continues, more and more people will feel the pain of the shutdown and start to say, I'm fine, I can go back to work, which will create a second wave of cases for the hospitals that they're really not prepared for. They're not prepared for because we, the first wave was not big because we actually were able to you know, reduce the transmission substantially through the shutdown. So I think if we're going to open the economy, we really need the same kind of testing that we would have needed in a world where we didn't need to close down the economy in the first place. And we're nowhere near that. So in light of that, do you think that cities will be able to reopen to some degree in the next three to six months? I think months? they'll all be able to open if there are dramatic improvements in testing, right? I mean, I think you're saying it exactly right. Dramatic improvements in testing don't just mean that we get a test that can give me an answer, an accurate answer in five minutes. It also means creating an infrastructure for that testing. If people have to go to the hospital to get tested, say that device exists and it does the test in five minutes, but I have to go to the hospital to get the test, it's going to create massive transmission of the virus in a hospital setting, which we just cannot afford. So even if this novel test is developed, we need to figure out how to deploy it in an open air environment like a parking lot, where a bunch of us can kind of drive up in a car, get tested. If we're tested, we get tagged as being virus negative, and we can go on to work. The goal is for individuals to be able to drive up and be swapped without having to leave your car. Stores like Target, Walmart, Walgreens, and CVS plan to make room in their parking lots for the tests. Speaking of these drive-through and, and rapid testing um, centers that have opened up, so, so some of these, it seems like, have the capacity to test something like 1,000 people per day. Yeah. I'm curious, what is the bottleneck for a, a testing center like that? Is it, the, is it supplies? Is it the number of kits that are available? Is it just the logistics of, of getting people through the facility? In other words, why is the capacity of a, of a, a drive-through testing center a thousand rather than, you know, much more than that? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the, a lot of the drive-through centers are still, you know, kind of getting a sample um, from deep up your nasal passage and then sending it to a centralized lab. And that process takes a lot of time, which is why they're limited to a thousand, which is why we can't really open the economy. You can't open the economy with a thousand people. If you're an American and you get very sick a couple of months from now and you suspect that you have coronavirus and you want to get tested, do you anticipate that that person a few months from now will be able to get a test and it would be free? 
Yeah, I do. So I'm definitely on count me while being very pessimistic about our current situation, extremely optimistic about the future situation. I think that the, the innovation that we're seeing in testing is considerable and on a scale that we've really not seen in a decade. And so if you're talking about, you know, on August the 6th, if I need to do testing, you know, will it be fast and rapid and cheap and free? I think the answer is to all of those three questions would be yes, yes, and yes. And, you know, when I say free, I don't mean like it might be free to the employee or to the American citizen, but someone has to pay. So government will pay or the insurance companies will pay or the state will pay. Someone will, will have to still pay. Well, fresh hope in the fight against COVID-19 this morning with Australian scientists launching the first testing on potential coronavirus vaccines. Sounds good, doesn't it? Um, and what's been... There are actually several companies that are in this kind of arms race to get a vaccine. Moderna is in clinical trials already. Innovio slated to start clinical trials next month. A German company, Curavac, also researching a vaccine. Tell me about Johnson & Johnson. So... Everybody's talking about this race to the vaccine, and we've seen news that there are trials underway in different parts of the world. What does this race look like? How many players are involved, and who are the key players? Yeah, I think the, the I mean, there's, there's a number of players, but they're all the usual suspects in the vaccine business, right? Most companies left the vaccine business a lot many years ago because there's not a lot of money to be made on vaccines. Uh, a lot of the demand for vaccines comes from some of the poorest countries in the world who have absolutely no ability to pay. That's going to decimate demand completely, right? Right, but I would assume that in this case, with this yeah. pandemic, things are a yeah. bit different. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely, it's different, which is why a whole bunch of companies have gotten into the vaccine business. I'm not surprised that there wasn't a vaccine for coronavirus. But I would be surprised if there is no vaccine for coronavirus a year from now. Right. And so if a vaccine gets discovered tomorrow, when would be, when would be the earliest possible uh, before that vaccine can be actually used um, on, on curing somebody or on, yeah. Yeah. It really depends on the principle of, the vaccine. So I think even if the vaccine were approved, what you're getting at is there could be some major delays in manufacturing the vaccine. Vaccine manufacturing is extremely expensive. Um, and, you know, they all work on the same principle. I mean, if you have a vaccine, you're essentially presenting a part of the virus or all of the virus to the human immune system in the form of an injection at a very low dose. The body comes across that partial or full pathogen at a low dose and produces antibodies. But the vaccine, to make the vaccine, I still have to produce a part of the virus. I have to grow the virus partially or completely. So that's a very laborious process. Right. And, and I think you're right to say, even if you get the vaccine approved, it might take a while to build it. So I think this goes back to our conversation on masks and ventilators. You could absolutely say to the pharmaceutical company that develops the first successful vaccine that we, society, will buy the rights 
for that vaccine from you and then make the vaccine on our own. Because no given company may have the manufacturing ability to make that vaccine for the world. I mean, six and a half billion people need the vaccine, with the exception of the people who've already had coronavirus, right? So let's say that like a year from now, a billion people have had coronavirus, or two billion people have had coronavirus. We'll still need the vaccine for four and a half billion people. I do not believe that there is a pharmaceutical company that can make four and a half vials of their vaccine in, in a three week period. I don't think that that's a thing that we know how to do. But I think if we, could, if we could distribute the manufacturing to pharma, all the pharmaceutical companies, I think then that could be built and done. But we should be thinking ahead to the manufacturing challenge. We've seen that countries are keen on having the vaccine developed on their own soil. Um, uh, the US made news when it tried to poach a German company to move here. Why is it so important to have, for a country to have everything done in its own territory? Yeah, I think this is just a form of nationalism. You know, it's just yet another side of nationalism. I mean, I guess I don't, I just want a vaccine for the world and I don't care if it comes out of Cambridge, Massachusetts or Shanghai or Tel Aviv. I think the world needs a vaccine and I don't think we should be poaching people and I don't think we should be making a big you know, flag ceremony out of this. So if the vaccine gets developed in Germany instead of the United States, would it be able to get to the U.S. market in the same time as if it was developed in the United States in the first place? No, because I would argue that the U.S. market is so much bigger than the German market that even if it got manufactured and developed in Germany, the manufacturer would have a strong incentive to sell it to the American market. So I'm not at all worried. I guess that's why I'm not worried about where it comes from. Right. So in the end of the day, this is just um, a marketing stint to say our company has developed the vaccine? Yeah, it's like, I think the same reason, you know, it's sort of like just, it's just flag waving. And, you know, we understand flag waving, but like, that's just nationalism. You know, science doesn't care about whether someone, the virus doesn't know if I have a Palestinian passport or an Israeli passport. Um, and so I feel very much that what the world needs is a vaccine. And then what the world needs is a manufacturing strategy for the world, not for our own. And maybe each country figures it out for its own self, the manufacturing strategy. But that would be a, that would be a good thing for countries to figure out. They should figure that out now before the vaccine arrives. Right. And in the end, after manufacturing, after everything is done, do you think the pricing is going to be similar to that of tests that it, the government or insurance companies are going to pay for it? Sure, they should pay for it. I think it's a public health vaccine, so they should pay for it because we, we have a long history of knowing that you know, markets are not good at, do, at managing situations where there's externalities. And so here, there's a strong incentive for everyone to be vaccinated, not just for the people who can afford it to be vaccinated. Everyone benefits from not having coronavirus because if some people have coronavirus, it's sort of like the whole economy needs to be shut down. And I think because of that externality, this is a task, the task of subsidizing it for everybody that governments should take on. But I don't think the problem is really going to be the US market and how the US market pays for the vaccine. I worry a lot more about a poor country like Bangladesh or Pakistan or Sri Lanka or 
India or Afghanistan, right? How do we get the vaccine to the citizens of those countries? Right. Because as we travel to those countries, fully vaccinated, but still carrying the, vac the virus, we will give those people the virus. So I think if we're a decent people, we should figure out how to, you know, pay for the vaccine in those countries whose governments may not have the resources to pay for the vaccine for their citizens. And lastly, at least from my part, what is the number one lesson that governments should learn from this crisis? The number one lesson is, I think, don't try to do everything yourself, right? And I think that's a simple lesson, but it means you're going to have to collaborate. You're going to have to collaborate not only with other governments, the Chinese, the British, the Germans, but you're also going to have to collaborate with the private sector. You're also going to have to collaborate with regulators. You're going to, have to so I think, and I just, I just think, you know, this, this thinking that like there's one agency in Atlanta called the CDC that will get it all right has all the wrong lessons in it. And this is not a criticism of the CDC at all. It's just this, it's a criticism of thinking that there is one tent that can figure out the answer to an incredibly complicated question. Right. Dr. Chandra, thank you so much for making time to join us and for sharing your expertise today. We really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. I hope that was helpful. Thanks for joining us on The Dive. This episode was produced by Paloma Strelitz, Soya Saroy, and Judd Olanoff. If you found this discussion informative, Please share on social media and follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. We're busy working to produce more stories on global issues that matter to you. We're always happy to receive suggestions. Just write to us at ideas at the dive .media.